Well, our service began with Taylor kind of giving us an overview of the story of God. And you might think that that's a little unusual. I mean, a little, why start your service with the story about God? Well, the reality is that we all tell ourselves a story, and we're either going to tell ourselves a story of our own making, or we're going to tell us a story that God tells. And our hope at New Life Church is that every Sunday, uh, you are reminded to tell yourself the story that God tells, to, to find your place in His story, rather than simply to um, make up your own stories about your own life. Now, you say, well, I don't believe that. I don't believe I make up stories about my life. Well, I just want you to think about this, right? Maybe you have just accepted an assignment at work that you know is over your head. What are you going to do? You're probably going to begin to tell yourself a story about it, aren't you? Or maybe you need to have a conversation with a relative next week that you know it's going to be really, really hard. And I'll bet that before you go into that conversation, you're going to be telling yourself a little story about that. Or maybe you're headed off to college this fall and you don't know what to expect. Or maybe you just moved and you, and you don't know what your routine is going to be like. And so you begin to tell yourself a story, of, even a story about all the people that you meet and encounter and what they think of you. Or maybe you've had enough with the same old binges. And you know you need a change, but you really don't know what that change will look like. And so you try and navigate it by telling yourself a story about all of these various parts of your life. Well, Psalm 91, if you haven't turned in, if you don't have your Bibles open yet, please open your Bibles and turn to Psalm 91. Psalm 91 will help you tell yourself the right story. Psalm 91 is a, uh, a way to interject into uh, the story you tell yourself, the truth about who God is and what He wants for you. Psalm 91 is one of those psalms that speaks to a universal human need because it talks to all of us about the areas of insecurity in our lives. If you're looking forward to something that's hard or something that's unknown, Psalm 91's for you. Somebody said that the Bible was not written to us, but it was written for us. Because as we know, it was written to some people at a certain time in a certain place. Sometimes it's easy to tell that time and place, and other times it's not. Last week was easy. If you look back in your Bible, one chapter to Psalm 90, you'll see the superscription that says, A prayer of Moses, the man of God. And we're able then to say, Moses. Well, of course, Moses. He's a pretty important person in the Bible. We know a lot about him. And he wrote this for his own thing for his own time, for people who were going through what he was going through. And there are other psalms that tell us that sort of setting in life. But this psalm doesn't. You'll notice that Psalm 91 just jumps right into it. 
And that, too, is a clue about how God intends us to apply Psalm 91. In other words, Psalm 91 is not for a specific thing, for a specific time, for only this one instance. Psalm 91 is really for any unknown circumstance that you're going to run into. The message of it is simply this, that God pledges to be your refuge and protection if you seek your security in Him. God welcomes anyone who comes to Him for security and peace. And you'll see that right out the gate in the first couple verses. Verses 1 and 2 are really clear that God intends to be this refuge and protection. Look at verse 1 and 2. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. I don't know, but I, I can't read that without saying, you know, that's where I want to be. I want to be in that shadow. I want to be under that shelter. I want to have that refuge and fortress. There are a couple things about this, these first couple verses that function kind of as an introduction to the psalm that I hope will be helpful for you. The first thing that I want you to notice about these first few verses is the, the names of God that are in here. These names of God tell us uh, about who it is we're seeking refuge from. Look at, look at the names for God. He is the Most High. He is the Almighty. He is the Lord, or Yahweh. It's His covenant name. And he is my God. There are four different names for God used in these two verses. The names Most High and Almighty speak to God's ability to remind us that, that whatever it is we're going to encounter, God is higher than that. God is more mighty than your problem. His covenant name, Lord or Yahweh, and my God speak to His nearness so that you can be certain that He's powerful, but He's not far off. He's powerful but he's close by. He is both strong and close. He is both great and good. And when you put these four names together at the beginning of this psalm, you realize that the person in view here is not placing their trust in some vague, self-defined spirituality, but in a covenant creator God of the Bible. And I think that's really important because there's so many people that you and I both know that have some sort of spiritual ideas. They will talk about God 
but to them he may be the man upstairs, or he may be some other um, construction of their own imagination. And here he tells us it is really important that you know that God is most high and almighty, that he is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, and that he is my God close by. This also reminds us that what he's talking about in the rest of the psalm is not uh, some mediated, ceremonial, religious experience. But rather, he's talking about a relationship with a person who has a name. Verse 14 um, points that out. If you skip down there and, and see that it reminds us that our relationship with God is for someone who actually knows his name. One commentator wrote this. He said, so the psalmist declares his own faith here in verses 1 and 2 before he applies it to us. This is an eloquent opening, enriched not only by the four metaphors of for security, but by the four divine names. Most high is a title which cuts every threat down to size. Almighty is a name which sustained the homeless patriarchs. Yahweh, or Lord, is a name God used with Moses when he assured him that I am is with you. And even the general term for God here is made more intimate with the personal pronoun, He is my God. The second thing I want you to notice about this introduction is not only the names of God, but also the four pictures here of God's protection for us. He is a shelter and a shadow. He is a refuge and a fortress. These four give us the impression that there is nothing that is going to break through that can ruin us. The first couple are peaceful, simple, easy, shelter and shadow. I mean, the first part of this year, we all needed an umbrella when we went outside because it rained all the time. We needed a shelter from the storm. Yesterday, some of us were at the first city celebration and thanking the Lord that it was cloudy. But there were moments when the um, clouds blew away and the sun beat down directly, and it was like a different experience altogether made us grateful for the shadow provided by the clouds. And so there is this seeking refuge from the beating sun or seeking refuge from the storm. But then there's also these other two, refuge and fortress, which have to do with more of an all-out war where you're, you retreat to find safety. And so you get this impression, even in the introduction, that regardless of the circumstances, God will protect you. Well, talking about the circumstances, 
If you look through the rest, verses 3 through 13 make up, you might say, the body of this psalm or the, the, um, the substance of it. And verses 3 through, t- 3 through 13 um, function more or less as a list of problems that you might encounter that God will protect you from. So let's look at them uh, kind of one by one. Verse 3. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from deadly pestilence. He'll deliver you from the snare of the fowler. I'm just going to venture a guess that none of you have been afraid of a fowler. It hasn't even crossed your mind. And rightly so. Really, I mean... A fowler, as the name would indicate, is somebody that traps birds. And it's uh, <laughs> before you had a shotgun, okay? They didn't have shotguns in the Bible. Before you had a shotgun, you had to figure out a different way to get a bird, right? And how are you going to do that? You're going to snare it. You're going to trap it. You're going to deceive it into going into your trap, and then you'll catch it. And what he's suggesting here is that God will be a refuge and a protection for you from deception and treachery. Then it says he'll keep you safe from pestilence. Pestilence is such a good word. It's kind of a, it's kind of a Bible word though, right? I mean, you, when are you ever going to run into pestilence if not in the Bible? Well, maybe in the world for the last two years just not a very modern name for what we've come to say pandemic, right? That's pestilence. Pestilence is that unseen virus or bacteria that causes all sorts of havoc among a population. It's just the Bible name for it. And he says, you know what? I'll keep you safe even in the pandemic. Then verse 4, he says, He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will, he will cover you with his pinions. Okay? This is a picture, frankly, of chickens in the Bible. Didn't know chickens made the Bible, did you? Um, We have chickens. Some of you know our family has chickens. Some of you know that there are some people uh, in this room that refer to me as chicken grandpa. That um, other grandpas get cooler adjectives. There's uh, peacock grandpa. The worst is there's motorcycle grandpa. And I'm chicken grandpa, like loser grandpa. (laughs) Until, until I get to Psalm 91. There are no motorcycles in Psalm 91, only chickens. (laughs) And the picture is, again, that the chicks hide under the wings here of this chicken to protect it uh, from predators or from fire or from Anything else? That's the way that birds protect their young. 
We had some little birds make a nest in our birdhouse this spring, which we enjoyed uh, quite a lot. And they, we, we'd noticed that they were in and out of there. And I said to Marcia, we should get the binoculars and look at them a little more closely. And as, she, as soon as she raised the binoculars to her eyes, the, the, the mother bird went in and then the, the daddy bird was there kind of on the edge giving extra supplies when a squirrel, which also is the bane of my existence, as you know, climbed up to uh, the birdhouse and was intent on causing trouble. And this, this father bird stood on the pinnacle of the birdhouse and spread out its wings as wide as it could go. But not just that, it began to, go, it began to sort of uh, uh, try and intimidate the squirrel. And actually it did. It was successful. The squirrel backed down and left and never bothered it again. But the birds are very protective. And that's what this father bird was doing. I mean, the picture here is that God will care for tender, helpless people like mother and father birds will care for their young. Then you'll notice later in that verse that his faithfulness will be like a shield and a buckler for us. Now, if you're familiar with Captain America, you're familiar with a shield. Uh, Captain America can use his shield on offense, but for the most part, a shield is used for defense, where, uh, in fact, Bible time shields were bigger and you would hunker down while they were firing um, arrows at you and they would hit your shield and fall helplessly to the ground. A buckler, on the other hand, uh, is not something on your belt. A buckler is a small, probably frisbee-sized uh, shield, hand shield. So that if you're in hand-to-hand combat, you can, um, you can defend yourself very quickly with this buckler. It's a little bit like Wonder Woman might use her bracelets, right? So you can't be a superhero without a shield or a buckler. And what this tells us is that God will be your shield and your buckler. Everything you need for defense, God will take care of it. Look at verse 5. He, he begins to, he continues this picture. He says, you will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. And here, what he's letting us know is that it doesn't matter when you need this protection. At any time of night or day or noonday, God watches over you. There is no time when he is off duty. It doesn't matter if it's night terrors or sickness or destructive enemies, God protects his people. And then he continues in verse 7. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, 
here's a picture that even war is something not to be feared when you are finding your refuge in God. That no matter what happens, he will protect you. You only have to look at your eyes and see that God does not forget to punish the wicked. Then verses 9 and 10, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. And you'll notice the, the language here is the language of verses 1 and 2. I mentioned earlier that First of all, he tells us about his relationship with God before he commends it to us for our own relationship. Here he reaches back to his own faith and his own experience, and he uses the language, the Lord is your dwelling place, the Most High is your refuge. You can trust in this God who is the Most High. And so here... It's emphatic that you, you um, are safe. You, to you it will not draw near. This trauma, this pestilence, this danger will not draw near. It is a statement of exact and minute providence not just a charm against some adversity. There is no less sweeping promise that's like Romans 8.28 where everything works together for good to those that love him. It's just like that. It assures us that nothing can touch God's servant except by God's permission. And equally, there is no rebel that can escape God's retribution. And so this is probably a good time to stop here and to acknowledge what you might be thinking. What if you're really working on this, you would be thinking. And that really is, how can this be so good? Am I really this invincible because I have a relationship with God where no, where no pestilence will bother me? I can do anything I want and never get COVID? Where I can be in no danger so that I could potentially drive 130 miles, 130 miles an hour on icy roads and never end up in the ditch? Wow. I mean, it does sound kind of like that, doesn't it? How good is this? Well, I want you to realize that it is that good, and you're not the first person to notice that it's really good. Because Satan knows that it's really good. He knows exactly the promise of God. So much so 
that part of his temptation of Jesus was to get Jesus to presume upon the promise of God. You know that Jesus knew Psalm 91, I hope. Right? It probably doesn't take much imagination to realize that Jesus was aware of how good God's promises were. So Satan said, you know what? I'm going to use his own thing against him. And in Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, Satan quotes verses 11 and 12 of Psalm 91 to Jesus. This is, I mean, you'll recognize him. If you've read Matthew, you'll recognize him uh, when I read them. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And so part of the temptation of Jesus, it says that uh, Satan took him up to the pinnacle of the temple and said, just uh, jump down here. God said, he'll send his angels, take care of you. You won't even stub your toe, let alone crash to your death when you jump from the pinnacle of the temple. In other words, Satan knew that this was an invitation to presume upon the goodness of God. And so he used that to tempt Jesus. And I just want to say to you that this is really not that, right? I mean, Jesus didn't treat it as that, as some presumption where he could do whatever he wanted and God would clear him. Rather, this is a certain statement that when you have trouble... Okay, if you look down in verses 14, uh, 13 and 14, he calls on him in trouble. It's not a prevention of trouble or to say you're not going to have trouble, but when you have trouble, you can find God to be your protector. Well, Satan wanted to bait Jesus with this. Yeah, you can... You can Presume upon God's goodness to you. If anybody can, you can, right? And Jesus didn't. But Satan quoted verses 11 and 12. He did not quote verse 13. Okay? I want you to look at that. You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. I think there's a reason that Satan knew about Psalm 91. And it shouldn't surprise us that he stopped quoting before he got there, right? That you will trample the serpent underfoot. Because that reminds us, I think just like it reminded Satan, of the very first promise in the Bible. Genesis chapter 3 Verses 14 and 15. It says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. The dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her offspring and your offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He will trample on the serpent. 
And so this points us really to the victory of Jesus over that serpent. And I, w I can make that connection on good authority because Jesus himself made that connection. Because Jesus, Satan quotes 11 and 12 to Jesus. Jesus quotes verse 13 about Satan. He says in Luke chapter 10, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Okay, this is who this is about. Verse 19, behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Jesus recognizes that this is a, a word about his victory over Satan. And so at the heart of Psalm 91, the safety that Psalm 91 promises is the victory that Jesus wins over Satan. And that really is the, the body, you might say, of the psalm. And verses 14, 15, and 16 tell us why those things are true. What it is about a relationship with God that promises to keep us safe. Look at verses 14 through 16. You'll notice before, before you read it, I want you to notice there is a different voice. The, before, so far, it's been the one who trusts in him or the one who... Um, finds his refuge in God. Now, God is doing the talking. God is talking about the one who holds fast to him, to me, to, to God. So, God is doing the talking, and this is what he says. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. And so here's the conclusion of the matter. If the first two were the, begin, were the introduction, these last three are the conclusion. The conclusion is that God takes care of those with whom he has a relationship. And so in these last three verses, you find really both ways. You find what we do, you find what God does. And I, w I want you to realize there are things that we do and there are things that God does. But I'm not saying this, okay? I'm not saying if you do your part, God will do his part. This is not some transaction that you make with God. I also, don't, I also want to make sure you hear me say that a relationship with God requires your participation. That's what relationships do. And so it requires your participation, but it's not a transaction. You do your thing. He does this. You pay your money and he gives you his thing. It's not like that. But rather it's a relationship. And this is what it looks like in this relationship. Um, look at verse 14. It says, 
He holds fast to me in love. The word, that word is used in other places for setting your heart on somebody or something. This is the only place in the Bible where it talks about man's commitment to God. But it really is an affectionate embrace of the person of God. It's a relationship. That's part of the reason our church you know, talks about delighting in God because your affection for the person of God is important. So that's the first thing, the first element of, on my side of a relationship with God is that you hold fast to Him in love. The second is that you know His name. The one who knows His name. In other words, He's a real person. And it isn't mere rational content or doctrine. It is a person you have a relationship with. You call him by name. That's why those names at the beginning of the psalm were so important. And then the third element here is he calls on me. You hold fast in love. You know the name, and you call on him. There is a bond between the helper and the helpless. This is all about grace, where what we bring is the prayer. What God brings is everything else. He holds fast to me in love. He knows my name. When he calls, I will answer. So those three things are the things we bring, which isn't much, but it's a relationship, right? I want you to see what it is that God brings. If we bring three things, God brings eight. Look at it. It says, verse 14, I will deliver him. I will protect him. I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him. I will honor him. I will satisfy him. I will show him my salvation. That's no small thing. Those two things are not equal. My part and God's part. But rather, I mean, what? Why wouldn't you love him? Why wouldn't you call on him? If he's going to deliver you, protect you, answer you, uh, honor you, rescue you, be with you, satisfy you, and show you salvation, why wouldn't you call on him? Why wouldn't you love him? See, that's what a relationship is. And so we're invited into that kind of relationship with God. Now, as you rehearse what it is that God does for his people, I want you to kind of end where the psalm ends. Get to the, get to the point. Get to the final word, right? Look at what the final word is. The final word lets us know how all of this comes to be. I will show him my salvation.
If you were to make a proper name out of salvation, that proper name would be Yeshua. Yeshua, anglicized, is Jesus. You do remember what God told Joseph the carpenter, right? Or what an angel did. You will have a son, and you will call his name Jesus or Yeshua, because he will save his people from their sins. That's where this comes from. And so Psalm 91, uh, though it engages the conflict between uh, Jesus and Satan and shows, Satan, or shows Jesus to be the victor who crushes the serpent's head, it also points us to Jesus who saves his people from their sin. All of the safety, all of the protection, all of the comfort and security wrapped up in Psalm 91 finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. This protection and peace comes to us because of Jesus. This sh shelter and shadow, this refuge and fortress, the promise in Psalm 91 is just the bud. But Jesus is a full flower. There is a person who will secure for us this kind of safety, this kind of relationship with God, this glorious salvation. And his name is Jesus. I mean, Psalm 91 sort of drips through the whole New Testament. So much so that you have almost these very same ideas reiterated in Romans chapter 8. They sound like this. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. How does that happen? In Christ Jesus, our Lord. It is Christ Jesus, our Lord, that provides for us this eternal salvation, this eternal security that you find in Psalm 91. And so ultimately, when we begin to tell ourselves stories about how things are going to play out, Psalm 91 is there to intercept those stories and to remind us that God has so pledged himself to take care of you that he sent his one and only son, Jesus. Won't you trust in him? Won't you come to him as the one who will save you? See, all of us need to come to Jesus. And then all of us need to remember that you never outgrow and you never escape your need for a savior who will do for you what God promised here in this psalm. He will be 
um, your shelter, your refuge, and you can find yourself in the shadow of the Almighty. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come asking and pleading that you would help us believe this. This really is too good to be true. That you would love us so much that you would care for us even in trouble so that we can call on you. We can know your name. And Father, I pray that you would help every person here every single day to commit themselves to your safekeeping, to commit themselves to loving you and holding fast to you in love, to calling on you and knowing your name, and then to enjoying everything that you promise those of us who seek refuge in you. Thank you for the glorious promise in the name of your Son. Amen.